The Writer's Toolkit is published by Nick Hearn Books. Order direct from the publisher and get 20% off this and other great titles. Visit nickhearnbooks.co.uk Taking you inside the writing rooms of much-loved playwrights and screenwriters, this is the Writer's Toolkit Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Writer's Toolkit Podcast with me, Paul Kalbergi. In this first season, I'm focusing on practice and process, grabbing a virtual coffee with writers around the world, finding out all about their writing routines, how and where they work at their best, as well as the journey to stage and screen for some of their best-known works. Coming up... If we want to talk about juggling the balls of life wearing various hats, spinning multiple plates, and still managing to maintain a prolific writing career, then my guest today could probably write a book on it, and a libretto and possibly even direct and produce it too. Marjorie Chan is the artistic director of Toronto's Theatre Passamurai, Canada's original alternative theatre. In lots of her work, Marjorie takes on big stories, historical pieces that could potentially be overwhelming. So I was keen to find out how she gets started on those projects, how she kind of breaks the back of them, and how she finds an entry point. And I also had questions about some of the quirkier projects she's written for. Just like you would choose an Uber, you would choose a performance. So someone would choose my play, and then an actress named April Lung would get in your car, and she would perform her monologue. She was basically a washed-up ping-pong player, um, kind of like working through her own issues, um, and she was trying to get to her match. The Writer's Toolkit Podcast with Paul Kalbergi. Born in Toronto to settlers from Hong Kong, Marjorie Chan is the artistic director of Theatre Passamurai. As an award-winning interdisciplinary artist, she primarily identifies as a writer, while maintaining an active practice as a dramaturge and director. Marjorie is the recipient of a string of awards, including four Toronto Dora Awards, one for Outstanding Performance, and three for Outstanding New Opera. She was named the K.M. Hunter Theatre Artist, an award for mid-career artists in Ontario, in 2005, And in 2017, she was awarded the George Luscombe Membership in Theatre Award from the Toronto Alliance for the Performing Arts. As a playwright, Marjorie is perhaps best known for her dramas focusing on Chinese history, with her plays China Doll and Anking Winter, The Madness of the Square, and most recently, Lady Sunrise. As a librettist, she's collaborated with composers on operas including Mother Everest, Sanctuary Song, and Medea Undone her amazing adaptation of Medea with Edinburgh-based composer John Harris. Marjorie somehow balances her writing career with her role as artistic director of Theatre Passamurai in Toronto. I have no idea how such a busy and much-produced writer manages to hold down an important artistic leadership role. So lots to unpack here. I have so many questions. Marjorie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. You know, an end of the day for you, start of the day for me. Um, one of us can have a glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> we won't say who. We won't say who. You're right. <laughs> you can't see us. You won't say who. <laughs> um, it's been great to see, you know, the West End and Broadway, the lights coming back on and things starting to open up. How is it in Canada? Have you started to welcome back audiences yet? Yes, there's uh, some companies here that are welcoming back audiences. We're obviously a really huge country. So in some ways, there are some areas of the country that, you know, we're continuing to work quite openly um, because their cases uh, numbers were so low. Mm. But in Toronto, where I am, uh, there are plenty of um, outdoor shows that were happening over the summer. Right. Certainly for some companies, they are returning indoors. I think for the most part, most people are hoping to have 
full kind of blown productions back in January. Yeah. Um, we ourselves are working indoors, but doing development and doing workshops, small numbers, not yet inviting full audiences in. Yeah. And you've been doing some work online as well, haven't you? Yes, that's right. We've had a really interesting time kind of exploring work that's possible online and possible in different ways. Like what are the ways that are possible? Not just kind of pointing a camera at an existing film show right. or theater show and film it, but actually find the ways in which that form kind of translates mm. and, and kind of the innovation that comes from that. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think sometimes when you sit down and watch um, a piece that was intended to be watched live, the fourth wall is never more apparent and you just feel so far removed from that piece. Um, but when you can think of new and engaging ways to really open that up and have it kind of, you know, in the ink, as it were, and, you know, create a piece that's intended to be shared virtually and digitally, it's, um, it's, it's fantastic. So that, that's great to see companies starting to think, you know, beyond the pandemic and what might sharing our work in this way look like going forward. Yes, absolutely. It's something, you know, we considered uh, really important and, and critical to that was like kind of making sure artists had the opportunity to kind of share work, but mm. also kind of learn about kind of more different approaches. And so um, in in that respect, we want to build capacity with the artist. And in the other respect, we also want to build capacity in our space. And we actually at Theatre Passamurai are kind of revisioning one of our smaller spaces to have more digital capacity to be able to film, to stream, uh, to be able to still hold performances and just offer more tools to the community to be able to engage in this kind of work. So... So writer and artistic director are just two of the hats that you wear. And I feel like for most of us, uh, you know, writing and passion projects would, would have to take a back seat to such a major kind of artistic leadership role that you're in. Um, but your resume um, is quite the opposite. You know, you have an endless list of credits and untold number of projects in development. When do you sleep? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, the truth is, is like one of my things is that if you need something done, ask a busy person to do it. Right. I had previously like had a position as an associate. I was mm. four days a week. I had like three premieres as well as an opera. And then I took the next three years off to focus on my writing. Yeah. And I had two premieres. Wow. <laughs> I was less productive wow. in that time. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm not yeah. saying, I'm not saying it's a healthy way to move forward. Were you kind of stock stockpiling work then almost ready to, you know, stockpile during the quieter times, ready to kind of release and produce stuff in the busier times? I wish I was that organized. Right. I wish I could say I had that much power over, you know, kind of uh, the work that I write and, and, and who kind of get, becomes interested in it. Yeah. I think it comes to the urgency of the stories I want to tell. Mm. So I think it's like when I feel that urgency and whether, you know, whether that's because a story is timely to me or, or it has an emotional um, urgency, I, I figure out a time, I figure out a way to, to move it forward right. and to tell it. So uh, in, in some ways, you know, I always do advise when I talk to writers, it's like, if you've carved yourself out 40 minutes, yeah. then make sure those 40 minutes, you're at the very least thinking about your work. Right. You know, right. you might be researching or doing something and not actively kind of putting words on a page, but 
that's the time you've given yourself. So you better take it. Yeah. Yeah. And do you do that? Do you kind of time box like this is my writing time? I'm going to protect this and I'm going to sit down and and use this time. How do you time box being a playwright in amongst everything else? I want to say that I'm one of these people that create a calendar and then wake up in the morning and have a cup of herbal tea. I'm not that person. (laughs) Right. But I'm just imagining like you've got phones ringing in this place and you're busy running, you know, clear to pass them awry. How? How do you yeah. how do you separate that and kind of be able to drop into the zone of these huge projects? I would definitely say like to do a first draft, I carve out the time yeah. that I need. I, I, I need that time to do a deep dive and to do an immersion. Mm. But I've done a lot of thinking up until that time. Okay. Those are things that can be done in snatches of time yes. so that when I've given myself a week, um, yeah. I can I can write something okay. and I can get a lot of it down. Okay. It, it kind of means I'm kind of a sprinter type writer. Right. But I, I think I've learned how to do the kind of research and the thinking mm. in smaller pockets of time. Okay. From when I started writing to when I'm writing now, I've, I've gotten better at a process that makes sense to me that right. I can research in little pockets of time. I can... I can sketch scenes or I can sketch kind of an outline. Those are things I can do, you know, with without a full huge range of time. Okay. Um, but I would say first drafts, I do need, I still need kind of like time to immerse in it for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. So otherwise, when you're driving around or doing the dishes or whatever it is, you kind of you're thinking of lines of dialogue and storing them away for when you sit down and kind of, you know, collate it all into a draft. Yes. And and, and to be true, the other thing happens, too, where you're like, you have to start something because the characters won't shut up and, you know, and, and they yes. just happen yes. to be going. And you're like, well, wherever yeah. I am, they're talking to me, whether I'm just on my phone, yeah. I'll just get this down because they're talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that when you feel that those voices when they're so apparent and you can hear that that rich dialogue you've got to capture it. Yeah, you just got to grab it and yeah. again like it could be on your phone yes, and you know yes. just you better get it down. <laughs> <laughs> right, almost like clairvoyance, right? <laughs> Channeling these voices as yeah. they come through. So where where do you like to write? Where's your go-to writing space? Do you have a particular favorite or it's wherever you are? I don't have a particular favorite. I would say that when I'm doing a first draft, I'm kind of all over the place. Like I could be on the couch I could Mm. be on living room table it could be on the floor um I'm not very particular except I'm particular in the moment right I need this and (laughs) and and this type of beverage and that type of pillow and that's that's how it's gonna happen my biggest thing is I don't I don't ever write in the same place where I write emails or where I do admin, or or where I do my work, frankly, as an artistic director, mm, that mm. it's just not the same place. And I will say historically, like, if I've been in a place where it was a very small apartment or something like that, I, all I would do is turn the desk around and yes. so that it faced a different way if I was doing creative work instead of, yeah, like admin work yeah. or whatever. Yeah. I actually have a row of um, three theatre seats here in my writing room. And sometimes I like to sit there and kind of take myself off and, you know, be an audience member for a second and just visualize a piece in a space. You have an amazing venue at your disposal. And I watched um, the backstage tour recently on YouTube, and it's a fantastic space. Do you ever take yourself into the auditorium and just soak up that ambiance and feel it in that space? Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, we're starting really being much more active, doing in-person things with 
COVID now and we're back into these spaces and so many artists are coming through some main creators and, and also actors they come through and, and they're just so energized by mm. just being in a theater space. It's pretty, it's a pretty yeah. amazing thing to feel secondhand. I would say for me, we've been doing yeah, digital yeah. work. So we have been in those spaces. So we, we've been having them and, and the playwright this past week in workshop had also kind of romanticized on our day off. Can I come in yeah. and sit in the theater and just write? We're like, yes, but then I have to bring in the technician. Right. And how about you come into the office and those actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, a little better space. At the same time, I do think changing the space where you work mm. is really important. Like get away from your computer, get yeah. pen and paper, get a notebook, go outside. Definitely. Go analog, go offline. Yeah. Look at the sky, look yeah. at people, you know. I used to work in a theatre in the northeast of England before I left home um, when I was in my kind of late teens. And I was working in a box office during the daytime. And on my breaks, I would um, ask if I could go and sit in the auditorium. And it was literally just the ghost light and the sconces. And there was something about that theatricality that kind of really you know inspired me to want to see my work on that stage uh -huh. and use that time to kind of feel at my most you know creative and inspired um which is why i ask and it would be great if there was a way that playwrights could just knock on a, on a you know on yeah. a stage door and you know wander in and uh, sit down and use these empty spaces if, if that's what feeds them yeah to sit and dream and yeah you know we underestimate how much impact um, these spaces have in people's imaginations. Mm. That's a good reminder. Thank you. Looking at the production photography of your work on stage, the word that comes to mind is epic. Ah. You certainly don't seem daunted by taking on, I guess, these sizable heavy stories. The Madness of the Square explores the events leading up to the, the brutal Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989. Potentially an overwhelming, you know, piece to take on. How do you decide, you know, where your entry point is? How to, you know, where to point your lens when starting a piece like that? Oh, it's such a wonderful question. A really difficult subject matter, difficult politically mm. as well. So even those choices as an artist to, you know, as a person of Chinese descent to go, what, well, where are we going to go with this? Right. What are you going to talk? How are you going to talk about this? Yeah. Um, and, and you're right. It was a challenge for me to think what was the entry point and could I have an entry point that mm. made sense or was even appropriate yeah. or could could hold could at least hold uh, that story in a way that could be understood. Yeah. Um, one of my big influences is uh, a, a writer, a Canadian writer named Jan Wong, who's a political writer and a, a reporter. And she had written a book called Red China Blues, okay. in which she had written her experience of being yeah. in Tiananmen but as I was working on it this is an absolutely true story as I was working on it um, I was asked to read a piece for a fundraiser for the for a theater company at kind of like some you know fancy do at somebody's house or something and so I'd read um, a monologue from from Madness of the Square at mm. that time kind of an unfinished piece and uh, someone I knew who's a human rights lawyer was in the crowd and he said, Marjorie, he said, can I tell you what happened to me today? I said, sure. I don't know. Go ahead, right. Harry. Tell me right. what happened to you today. He's a human rights lawyer. And he said, look, I got a tip that, that they were going to come to my office. And he goes, I realized I had some sensitive things that I didn't want in my office. 
when people were coming. Right. I said, yeah, okay. So he's like, so I took a bunch of those things and I put them into my trunk. I said, okay, where's this going? He said, will you come with me to my car? Well, luckily I knew this man and had maybe known him for a couple right, of years. Right, right. But he said, will you come to my car and look at my sh- inside my trunk, which is a very odd offer. And so I walk with um, this gentleman to his car and he opens his trunk and he hands me a box. He hands me a banker's box. It's filled with paper. It's filled with cassette tapes, uh, real copies of the newspapers, both co- both mimeographs and kind of the original copies. And I said, what is this? And he said, oh, I don't know if you know, but, you know, his friend, such and such and such a friend mm. was a reporter in China in 1989. These are her interviews. Would you like them for a while? And so there I was, instead of going back to this kind of fancy fundraiser, I went to my car with this box that had firsthand um, writing, like firsthand writing that says, I am a student of, this is, these are my, this is my name. And that was material that I was gifted and later uh, have gifted for proper archival purposes to a university. And um, that's how I found my way in. Absolutely. I had first, yeah, what a gift. And uh, the audio was quite informative just to hear, just to understand it from a point of media as well of what was being represented. Uh, It was a Western reporter that had this material originally. So I knew that that lens, Mm. that was the lens that I also had. I I, I didn't grow up in, 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 in that part of the world. I grew up in Canada. You know, my, my perspective was through a TV and when the tanks rolled, I was seated in the carpet in front of it. So um, uh, in some ways I kind of crafted a lead character that, that became a, a voice in the square, but also how that got filtered through, through media. Was that friend of yours able to, you know, did they did they see the, the piece on yes. stage? And, you know, yeah. how wonderful. So they're a good friend. They're still a, a, a tireless advocate um, for many, many different causes. Uh, I think he feels like he did his, his duty to theater oh, yeah. in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. And to the story as well, yeah. no doubt. Yeah. So your second play, A Nanking Winter, recounts the horrors of the Japanese occupation of Nanking, one of the worst genocides of the 20th century, which played out over six weeks in 1937. And you approach the story from the perspective of a young female writer much later, looking back from the 1990s, who is determined to make sure the past isn't forgotten. That's right. Yeah. Did that shape and form come to you early on, uh, or did you discover that once you started writing the piece? Um, the play is structured in two halves. One, the first half is a contemporary kind of contemporary setting around that, around a young writer that is writing about this subject matter. Yeah. And the second act takes us immediately to Nanjing, um, at the time of the invasion. Hmm. And I had a real, revelation and response to people's responses to China doll that um, I felt that I did a very good job of bringing people to a very specific moment and movement in time for uh, of China but people only took it at its historical value Mm. they Mm. didn't think about its ramifications in terms of what it also was talking about so there was there was an instinct for me to really I don't write these types of plays that have living rooms. I actually have a thing where I'm like, if I go to a, the theater and there's a couch, I kind right. of like, Oh, there's a couch on stage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guilty um, of one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And so, 
exactly the same. But um, so I had an instinct that I wanted the play to feel like uh, I'm using air quotes, like a normal play or mm. very kind of traditionally structured play yeah. to start, um, which is why the first half is contemporary and set on the day of a party, that kind of thing. It would have that energy so that I could, because I found the material really hard. Like right. I found it really, it's hard to talk about. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. I, yeah. So I wanted the audience to have that sense of familiarity and feel kind of in a place where they could re hopefully receive right. uh, what the play could give, give them. Okay. Okay. That's, that's really interesting. You kind of, you lull them in with that <laughs> false sense of here's something you can relate to and then throw the subject at them, right? Yeah. A little bit, a little <laughs> bit. Them over the head with it. Just, yeah. A little <laughs> bit kind of like, yeah. <laughs> That's great. And most recently, Lady Sunrise, um, I believe, is is the reinvention of a modern classic. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and kind of how you approached reimagining that story? Absolutely. Um, Chao Yu's Sunrise is a, is a pretty well-known kind of modern Chinese classic. And uh, the University of British Columbia had asked if I would just clean up the translation right. so that they could, they, could, they could do a reading of the play. And I'll be perfectly honest, in truth, they were offering me a very healthy commission to clean up the text. I right. said, look, is this the play you want to put on? Mm. Are you interested in kind of an unpacking of right. it? It's just for me to clean it up. This is very generous. Yes. So let's think about something else. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I was really struck by Chow Yu's ability to see women in a clear way. Mm. Um, I thought that was, you know, fairly fascinating for a play that was written almost 100 years ago now. And you do it through a very, a very modern lens, don't you? You bring it right up to date. That's right. And I was interested in that woman that I thought I met her in Hong Kong. I knew young women like her and and not and not young women like her. And right. the fact that culturally it spoke to something about the exploitation of women and in this particular case with that character of kind of like an entertainment business that comes out of um, kind of these pageantry and and uh, I, it was very specific to me that that character felt extremely familiar, even mm. though it was, you know, 90 years removed. Yeah. So I was pretty fascinated yeah. by that. And, and that began to kind of unravel in all the ways that women kind of um, are sometimes complicit in, in, in kind of these structures and also as victims, how they, how they break out as well. Yeah, and quite extraordinary. You do that as well through an all-female, all-Asian pretty much company, uh, you know, creative and cast. Yes, that's that's true. And um, in fact, I'd been writing the play, but it never, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't find the, not the theatrical home, but the right theatrical aesthetic home for okay, it. Okay, okay. And um, my good friend, Nina Leachino, who is uh, currently the artistic director at Factory Theatre, the, the, the weird thing is, <laughs> the weird thing, we were like, oh, she, you should direct, like, we kind of looked at each other, we're right. like, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, you, of course, of course, yes. that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, God, why didn't we ever think of it? But great when you have that shorthand and that synergy and you know what somebody will do with it and how your working relationship will really be able to benefit the project. Yeah, you're right, and and that I have that trust too, right? Like, I think one of the big things yeah. as a writer, like when you're ca having collaborators, you're not always in control of all of those collaborations that are happening. Mm. And so when you really can have that trust, it's a it's a pretty extraordinary thing to, to put your words out there and, and have a collaborator your trust be able to interpret it yeah. and it, I kind of joke like 
you know, she would say, hey, you didn't come to rehearsal today or you didn't come, you know, and I said, I'm good. Like, right. I, I'm actually good. If I might, I, I kind of think that if I, as a writer, if I'm at the rehearsals every day, it's because I'm concerned yeah. or like, it's not going right. as well as I yes. would like it to go. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> Isn't that great that a director wants yes. you in the room? <laughs> oh, that, there you go. Even that too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's always nice. So just looking at those those three projects, then, in terms of scale and the potential to be overwhelmed by a project, do you have any tips in terms of breaking the back and kind of finding your way into you know, a, a bigger piece like that? Um, so one little thing about me is that I reverse engineer most of my work. So I most of the time, I would say 95% of the time, I know the end scene. Okay. And that's the scene I write from wow. that I sometimes I write it first. Yeah. And uh, I just then it lives there. And I'm like, okay, work out the rest, which mm. is not often inelegant and, and kind of a messy yeah, path. Yeah, yeah. But I often uh, have an image or an idea of what that scene is. And I, I very often also write that scene first. Right. It's either the last scene or the scene before an epilogue. Uh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that that helps break it down or helps like... But, but write, write the big set piece that you see. Yeah, maybe it's easier for me to reverse engineer that, to kind right. of go, well, how do we get there? How do we get to that emotion yeah, yeah, yeah. and that critical moment in time? Yeah. More from the Writer's Toolkit after these messages. The Writer's Toolkit is published by Nick Hearn Books. Order direct from the publisher and get 20% off this and other great titles. Visit nickhearnbooks.co.uk This podcast is fueled by coffee. If you'd like to support the show, you'll find the Buy Me A Coffee link in the show notes. Welcome back to the Writer's Toolkit podcast. I'm just going to rewind now and talk about your very first play, which was China Doll, and it's been performed all over the world. And again, another brilliantly theatrical entry point. At the beginning of the 20th century in China, copies of Ibsen's A Doll's House begin circulating secretly amongst women in tea houses. And uh, Ibsen becomes a catalyst for Su Ying, a young woman who comes uh, to see a different future for herself than the one laid out before her by the patriarchal society that she lives in. Um, could you do a better job than I just did, Marjorie, of telling us more about <laughs> China Doll? I don't know. I don't think that I can. Right. <laughs> I think that's a pretty good description. Um, I think, yeah, to me, yes, it's about it's about this young woman and about seeing a better future for herself and and all the ways that Ibsen contributes to that, the way other people contribute to mm. that, the way you know, at that point in time in China, um, that foot binding was was um losing favor and yes. that as a metaphor seemed seemed to hold together uh to me the idea of Nora leaving and 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 uh making a choice to unbind one's feet the fact that those things intersected yeah. um in China at that moment in time is is fascinating frankly so yeah. well just to explain a little bit about what that is as well because I remember the first time that I became aware of Chinese foot binding it's quite a shocking concept to take in isn't it so for anyone who's not maybe aware of Chinese foot binding um it's quite strange to believe that such a practice ever existed can you just explain what it is 
Absolutely. It's, um, it's a practice that uh, lasted for about a thousand years. Some of it, um, some people believe that the practice began kind of in the way the way that you would understand someone might bind their feet to become a ballet dancer, right. the way that you would bind them to be to be better on point. And so that as a representation mm, of beauty of and, and of women's beauty, right? Um, the other correlation that the smaller her feet were, yes. the daintier she was the and the more attractive. Yeah, that's exactly precisely. And, and 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 the likelihood is that the practice started not the way that it ended with kind of the real brutality. And I think a lot of people like to talk about it as like breaking of the toes or breaking of the foot, mm. which is not quite accurate. What it actually is, is that when uh, a female child is quite young, three, four, five years old, what happens is their bones actually still are malleable and still can take some kind of convincing, I suppose, is, <laughs> is a terrible way to say they they would take a small child's foot and bend it and the big toe kind of becomes the point of a very kind of kind of a triangular foot and they would wrap bindings around that foot tie tighter and tighter and tighter um until they were Mm. growing in that in that respect it feels in the moment it's a it's triumphant for a woman to make that choice that's a choice that she makes but you know if we were going to talk practically and in reality now her feet are yeah. subject to infection where is she walking to mm. she's yes. <laughs> she's still subject to yeah. that society that's there yeah and so you actually played the role of the protagonist of su ling was that the world premiere production that's in right 2004? it was the original and it's a funny thing. I've never acted in one of my plays since, and I don't know that I would. I I think it made me a worse writer okay. because now now that I've had the chance to revisit that play kind of in translation or directing it again, I'd be like, well, what does this say? Who wrote this? <laughs> um, right, right. And it's because I would fill in that information as an actor, so it never got written down. Okay, okay. I, I think it made me a worse writer to act in my own play. That's interesting. Was it always a piece that you saw, you thought at one point you would like to return to direct yourself? No, no, yeah. not in the slightest. And <laughs> and when I was asked um, by the artistic director at that time, his name was Giovanni C., he said, I-, I think you should come direct this play here. Yeah. And I just kind of laughed because I just thought, no, why would I, what kind of masochistic person wants to revisit a pl- their very first play, yeah, you know, yeah. a decade after they had written right. it? <laughs> I was kind to myself. I was, I tried to treat it as text. Yeah, okay. And okay. Yeah. I did make some cuts, but for the most part, I, I treated it as it was and, and, and just tried to work out what the heck was I thinking. Right. <laughs> But great conversations to have so many years later, right, in the rehearsal room and allow yourself that freedom of distance from the piece to explore it again, you know, with a new cast um, and bring it to life again. And you mentioned the translation just then. So China Doll received a Cantonese language premiere in uh, 2017 in Hong Kong. Yeah. Did you do the translation yourself? I did not. No, I had we had done a reading of China Doll in Hong Kong in 2006 and just a staged reading. Okay. And the director had played the Popo character right. in that. And so I guess she held that in her mind since 2006 wow. and then you know 10 years later it was like marjorie 
I'm going to do it in Cantonese. I'm like, oh, okay, (laughs) let's talk about that. Did she work with you on the, or did you work with her on the translation? She did uh, the translation. I'm not a fluent reader. And the complication with the translation is, yes, Cantonese is Chinese, but it isn't the Chinese that uh, the characters in the play actually would be speaking. They're from Shanghai. And so in that way, we were still using local language of Cantonese because it was playing in Hong Kong. Um, and at the same time, convey the essence mm. of these characters in Shanghai. Was anything gained in the translation then, as opposed to being lost by the you know the nuances that were lost? For, for, on the flip side, what was gained? Um, I would say the relationships, uh, especially of the grandmother and the mother, came into sharp focus, yeah. and even sharper focus when they were performed. They okay. culturally sat in a much more grounded way than I think they ever could in English. They, okay. that it just existed better in a culture that also was surrounding that, yeah. just even in the larger context, than it ever could here uh, in Canada yeah. or in the Western yeah. world. How, how was the play received then by audiences in Hong Kong? I know that people had a lot of questions and it was upsetting. I would say there is less Hong Kong theater that looks back on itself or looks back at Chinese culture um, with, with any kind of critical lens. So even at that time in 2017, it's unusual to have work that, uh, that, that looks at its culture, that looks at its own culture and that might have some criticism of it. Was that controversial then in terms of, in terms of press and, you know, people not wanting to hold a mirror up to them, themselves and their culture? I mean, at that time, that was only 2017, you know, people were willing to have that conversation and, and were present to watch the piece. You know, at that time, even Hong Kong was removed enough to kind of say, yeah, that's like, that is a, um, in terms of a practice, mm. uh, obviously a barbaric old practice from, from, chi- from Chinese culture. Yeah. So in 2019, when you brought the play back again to the Gateway Theatre, did you bring anything from the production in Hong Kong? Did you did you retain any of those changes in the text? Um, I would say most what I gained from just my, I don't know, my years of like kind of living with that piece and that play was wanting to have way more compassion for all of the characters. Okay. That was something I really fought for as a director to bring these characters forward. Yeah. And the other thing is that I had done a lot of opera in, in, in the interim. So in all my conversations about how to approach this play, it only made sense to me if we thought of it as operatic, that there was yes. a person at the center yeah. and there was a grandness and a scale that was all around her. And uh, that was the way that I understood it. That, well, you certainly get a sense of that scale looking at those production photos from that stage as well. That must have been hugely satisfying to see this play come from the very first piece that you wrote to go on this journey around the world, you know, to... To, to Hong Kong, you know, almost back home for the piece and then and then back again to Canada and have this huge production. Was was that just incredible to take in? Yeah, you know, like is if you think about my career, like if you think that was my first play, it's about a Chinese character who's given a Western work, who mm. interprets it for herself. Yes. And here was kind of a Western interpretation of it, of someone who's diasporic Chinese. And so that was one piece of that. And so that for that to come back to Canada. Yeah. Um and at the same that was happening at the same time that I was working on Lady Sunrise that in some ways I was doing the reverse. There was a Chinese piece that I was recontextualizing for a Western understanding. So uh, I will forever be linked Mm. in the way that I am Chinese, I am Canadian, and but obviously kind of even my approach will never will never sit comfortably 
uh, going one way or the other. That all of、right. those things are still things I want to explore. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And while you've still got that, you know, that hunger to tell those stories and that interest, that's that's fantastic. Let's talk about your contemporary adaptation of Medea, which was staged at the Evergreen Brickworks, which I've been looking up online and just looked fantastic. What came first? Was it the venue or the opera? Was the piece written with the space in mind? Ah,、uh, no, it went through kind of many iterations, and once Tapestry kind of and Scottish Opera started to think about where they wanted to to put it, I was all for it.、Yeah. <laughs> All for it. I know, like on the opera side, they're kind of like, "We'll be here." There's the highway nearby.、Right. Is this is this going to happen? And for me, that rawness of being there really was an is an exciting place to be theatrically.、Yeah. And I knew that would open up, you know, opera to people who may not otherwise attend something called contemporary opera. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. People have an idea of opera so dusty and in a big building, and you have to wear a dress with、mm. a bow. And all sorts of things. And it's a barrier to entry, though, isn't it? Psychologically, sometimes. Absolutely, and so having it in kind of an unusual setting was kind of、uh, I just thought an inspired choice、uh, by the director Tim Albury. Yeah, much much more accessible. And so you you reconfigure Madame Butterfly as a revenge tragedy. So you almost have this Canadian original via Italy and Greece. So this kind of Puccini slash Euripides. Slash Chan collab, <laughs> is that right? Yeah, you know what? It came out of because、uh, I had met the composer John Harris.、Um, Tapestry Opera in Toronto does these pairings and kind of just does these like. Okay. These kind of pairings of librettists and composers, and going, like, see what comes out of there. And they said, "Can you look at Medea?" And I realized I hadn't read the play in a very, very long time. That I had misunderstood the last stage direction of the play. It says that she rides a chariot into the sun、yes, after she's、uh, committed the murders of her children. And for the longest time, and I guess I don't know why, even though I'd seen productions of it, I just thought. Oh, it definitely means that she commits suicide at the end. Okay, yeah, that's what yeah, I yeah. always thought. Well, after thought. doing what she'd done, you know, you would be mistaken for thinking that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. In your retelling of the story, you cut through and go beyond a lot of the the myth and sorcery of you know of, of the original、um, to kind of re- to re- reinterpret Medea as, as a modern woman.、Um, but it's more than just about putting a you know a cute trench coat on and a pair of power heels, isn't it? How did you reinterpret、uh, the character in, from from the source material? I wanted to understand how a woman would do what she did, how a woman could kill her own child, what what would push her to that point,、yeah. and what circumstances felt so hopeless、mm. that that was the recourse. If she was to kill her child and, in my mind, commit suicide、um, in the opera, she does it at the same time. To understand the circumstances which might drive her to that, yeah, that's what dominated kind of like our conversations as well. Yeah, wow, and it's it's a gorgeous production. I've watched all of the trailers I could find online, and it just looks <laughs> it looks fantastic. I'm curious about something that I read、um, in one of your many bios, where it lists the interesting forms that you've worked in, and it talks about cell phone plays. 
Marjorie, what on earth is a cell phone play? <laughs> <laughs> I was invited as a part of like open house. Uh, there's an area, a historical area in our in Toronto called the Distillery District. It used to be a distillery and is now kind of an artist tourist shopping place. Okay. And they were trying to animate the space in funny ways. We got all collected as artists and we were all brought together. We all come from different kind of walks and we were going to write some plays and do some fun things. Yeah. And, um, oh, by the way, we're sponsored by a cell phone company (laughs) (laughs) work that in (laughs) work that in so every piece somehow use a cell phone which was pretty you know or and use a video video cell phone in a different way on mine they call in on their own phone the people listening to the actual play i wrote became entertainment in and of themselves because they were being instructed to do these things that were like testing their morality so it would be an actress that was up in a boardroom you know acting this out and she instructed to them they were they were being tested on their um on their morality, basically. Wow. So it would be kind of like, if you've ever lied to your mother, then run around and do this. And okay. That kind of thing. So then a huge audience would develop watching the people listening to my play and doing the actions of wow. kind of... And so in the end, it was pretty interesting because people become very trusting. Yep. And eventually, like the last question is, please tell us the worst thing you've ever done <laughs> and that you want you know, some relief from. And people told terrible things. Uh, I I used to pinch my baby brother every day really hard. And I pinched him in a different place. And he got so many bruises, they took him to the hospital. Wow. Uh, Someone said, I completely cheated on my bar exam. (laughs) We were like, what? Wow. They were asking both the people on the phone and the people watching to absolve them of these horrible things that they had done. That's a cell phone play. Was was that the piece titled Ring-A-Ling-A Ping-Pong? No. So that was another, there were a number of pieces. They were all commissioned from Fujian Asian Canadian Theatre Company. And all of the pieces are um, meant to be performed by one performer. Okay. Uh, so the way it worked was just like you would choose an Uber, you would choose a performance instead oh, of an okay. Uber. Okay. So someone would choose my play and then an actress named April Lung would get in your car and she would perform her monologue. She was kind of a basically a washed up uh, ping pong player uh, and she was trying to get to her My match. God. Wow. So it's like, like a singing telegram service, pretty much. You order a play, a dialer play, kind of. That's right. Wow. I love that. Yeah. It's a really smart thing, like from Fujian Asian Canadians, because, you know, there's a lot of young Asians that live north of Toronto that is mostly in car culture and they're not downtown. So they thought yeah. we should bring plays to them. So That's they brilliant. did a whole weekend of, I think, 20 plays of which you could order off of this app and you'd have to go to this certain spot and pick up an actress or actor and they would perform for you and perform and they would give directions and and wherever they would end up so gosh that's brilliant and segues very nicely into accessibility yeah i read a wonderful interview marjorie where you were asked before taking over the reins of theater passamurai what your vision for the theatre was, your elevator pitch. And you said you need a million dollars to buy an elevator. That's your elevator pitch. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So the theatre is on two levels. Uh, the theatre used to be an old... Um, bread making factory and in fact our smaller space used to be the stables okay. of where the horses um were housed to deliver the the bread but uh they opened up the second level so that you can sit around and the the performance is on the lower level but it's it's also the social space the bar is upstairs the small cabaret kind of kind of performance space is kind of up on that upper level but 
there's no way to get there except through stairs. I, I, I say it as a joke. It was an elevator. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, at one point, uh, very early in his career, Keanu Reeves performed at Theater Passmarai. And, you know, there's a poster of him when he's 18 years old. And, yeah. And I, I do every once in a while. I say, I say to the poster, "So when are you going to come through?" Right. <laughs> <laughs> I say, "Can you come on?" Oh, I love that. Just, it'll be nothing. It's nothing for you. You could you could make this space accessible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and because because the theater Passamari translates to theater beyond beyond walls. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. You've done a lot of work around accessibility in terms of recently making tap dance available for hard of hearing and, and deaf audiences. What can we do as writers in the initial stages in terms of being mindful and incorporating accessibility uh, into our work? When we're thinking about accessibility and accessibility initiatives and how we give access to more individuals to receive our works, if there is not a mechanism for someone to be with your play or understand your play or share your play with them, then it is good as saying that you don't want that person there. Yeah. The simple example would be like, if there's not ASL interpretation at a piece and it's your piece, mm. are you comfortable saying... I do not want to welcome deaf people. Yes. Are you comfortable yes. with that? We would not be comfortable if we said, if I wrote a play and I said, I do not want this type of person here. Right. I don't think we'd be comfortable with yeah, that. Yeah, and yeah. I think society has changed enough that we think, oh, that's not fair, actually. Mm. At the madness of the square, um, a deaf individual had come to the play and had booked their own ASL interpreter wow. so that they could watch the play. Yeah. And I was actually kind of upset because I understood that that was a cost that was put on that audience member themselves. And all they wanted was to share in my play. So all that to say back to what can a writer do? Yeah. Yeah. I think you have to just begin to think what's possible in your piece. You might say, there's a way that I can embed audio description in my piece, maybe. Okay. Uh, there's a practical sense too. Yeah. I think you should be able to have that conversation. Yeah. Someone says, I'd like to do your play. I say, fine, you can do my play. This is the fee. Yeah. I would like you to have two ASL interpreted performances. Mm. Not every mm. writer can say that. Not every writer yes. can have that conversation in negotiations. But that's a practical Thing. You can have that negotiation. Definitely. There's quite a well-known playwright in Canada uh, who's a white playwright, who's a really terrific playwright, who's now putting in place that if you're going to perform her work, she asks that if you have a season, that you also have a, a, a work by someone wow. who's Black, Indigenous, wow. a person of color, yes. advocating, you know, for another community through her own negotiating power. Yeah. You know, if a writer has that, I think you can do the same for accessibility. Definitely. You can say, uh, sure, let's do Lady Sunrise, but I would like you to do a relaxed performance Definitely. and I'll have a conversation with you about how to do that. Yeah, I don't know if there's a similar thing in in Canada to the um the Dramatists Guild Bill of Rights in the US, but at that point of, you know, negotiating with an artistic director with a theater to have those conversations freely and say these are the things that I'm comfortable with and that I that I that I stand for and that um we need to make sure are in place from the beginning. Yes, or at least to begin to have that conversation, you know, yeah. you might ask and they might say no, but maybe the next person might not need to ask and they yes. say, "Okay, so what are you thinking about? Is there something a way that you know your play could you know be opened up to other people for example absolutely really encouraging and it feels like theatre passamari is striving to be accessible to theatre makers and artists too yeah. Let, let's talk a little bit about your meet marjorie surgeries it's so rare to get face time with the gatekeepers and decision makers and you're offering an opportunity an open door opportunity for creatives 
to meet with yourself and Theatre Passamurai and present top-level ideas and get some kind of on-the-spot feedback. Is that right? That's exactly what it is. We've actually only done it once because I've actually only been artistic director for two years, half of which has been a pandemic. Yeah, so we had yeah. the call out. We said, we'll continue to do it. We'll do it online. Yeah. Um, we got 115 submissions. Christ. And we said, okay, we'll see you. We'll see every single wow. one of you. Wow. And so we set up a series of days and a series of meetings. And we just invited uh, people to meet myself and my associate artistic director, Indrit Kasapi. Yeah. And Here's the truth. Here's what we learned. We learned that it's a mistake to curate that experience beforehand. Okay. There were definitely people that would not have made our shortlist mm. that we were extremely happy to have met okay. and to have met their ideas and their richness. Yeah, yeah. That wasn't necessarily conveyed in their very short application. Mm. We would have been remiss in not meeting wow. them. Wow. So the fact that it was open and we met everyone was really important. Yeah. The fact that it was online was actually really important yes. because I think in the past, does that mean these people would have gotten on a train or a subway, traveled an hour to come to downtown Toronto to come and talk to us for 10 minutes and then turn around and go home? Right. And also you, you give somebody that, that 10 minute spot. They're so grateful. They probably canceled the whole day's work. They've prioritized that meeting over everything else. That's right. And it's like really narcissistic, like <laughs> Like, everybody just like find three hours in your day to come talk to us for 10 minutes. Yes. I have to say, just anecdotally, yeah. uh, we definitely hired a trans uh, sound designer uh, who we did not know previously. We definitely are programming a kind of installation theater piece, not this season, but next season out of there. Um, we definitely confirmed... Uh, several writers, uh, several actors we, di we didn't know were writing. Mm. We definitely kind of confirm our interest in them and developing them and continuing as artists. Yeah, yeah. Um, we definitely met some some senior artists that uh, work in more spoken word oral traditions okay. that we would never have met otherwise yeah. uh, because they don't write their texts down, okay. their performative texts in tiny, tiny little clubs yeah, and places. Yeah, yeah. That's off the top of my head. Yeah. It just seems so much more beneficial for both the theatre and the artist in rather than a traditional submission policy. That's right. A writer could just come and talk to us yeah. about life or, or their work. Yeah. It didn't matter. We could just talk to them for 10 minutes. Yeah. And maybe you can pair up some of the some of the different artists that you've seen. You can piece together and say, oh. well, hey, why don't you go work with this guy? And yes, I, I, we didn't do that. But now we'll have to go back to that list right. and <laughs> see if that's possible. Right, right, right. <laughs> and is this something that's hyper local? Or are you open to international writers reaching out to you and saying hello yeah we met a really interesting writer from spain um we had uh, several people from the states and in particular for us we definitely met yeah. um some indigenous writers who live on reserve in canada and certainly would never have uh, been able to commit to a 10-minute meeting with us instead we were able to meet them online and and be engaged with their work okay final scene ah. Just a few questions to close with while the credits roll. Yes. Your new opera, The Nightingale of 1000 Songs, is based on a beloved Armenian folktale which follows two children who embark on an adventure to find the nightingale and ultimately bring back life and joy to their world. Which song is guaranteed to bring you joy? 
I, I love hearing people sing joyfully, no matter kind of if they're opera singers in my opera or or kind of in a community context. It, it, it's a it's actually very special to feel that kind of community and collective joy. Yeah, yeah that would be my answer. Okay, cool. Name a book that's had a big influence on you. The Rape of Nanking uh, by Iris Chang. Um, Iris being the inspiration uh, for a Nanking Winter. So in many ways, a Nanking Winter is my most imperfect play, but it's also, you know, it's also in some ways my favorite too. Okay, next time I'm in Toronto, Marjorie, where do I need to get coffee and where's the best place to write? I think um, if you want to have a good coffee, I would say Red Rocket on the Danforth and you'd both have a very good coffee and have a very nice place to write as well. Post-pandemic. Yes, but of course you're going to let me wander in and write in your auditorium, aren't you? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> if there were a play or opera about your life, what would it be titled? First of all, I don't want to live such an interesting life to have a play or an opera, I don't think, named after me. <laughs> well, as long as you don't murder your children and flee in a flying carriage, you know, we're probably good. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. Uh, oh, uh, an opera singer that I once knew, not the name of my play or opera, but he said that, I don't didn't know him very well, he said that the name of my memoirs would be, I laugh in the key of B-flat major would be the name of my memoirs. <laughs> That's a good one. You can work with that. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Before we say goodbye, Marjorie, could you leave us with your top tip for maintaining a healthy writing practice? I think... I think you can't wait for inspiration. I don't think that's new news. I think you just have to figure out how to write a better draft with the time that you have. And if you're doing something and you're stuck and it's not working, do something else and do it in a different form. Dance or move or draw or walk or yeah. swim or yes, sleep. Yes, uh, yes. Do something else and, and see if that can shake you out of it. Love that. That's what I'm all about with the writer's toolkit. That's, that's fantastic advice. Yes. <laughs> thanks, Paul. All right. Thanks, Marjorie. Thank you. Bye-bye. Oh, Marjorie Chan, what a joy. Marjorie's new audio drama with the working title Singer and the Strand will feature in Factory Theatre's returning series You Can't Get There From Here, available in March 2022, and her new opera with the Canadian Children's Opera Company is slated for a May 2023 premiere. If you'd like to explore more of Marjorie's epic plays, some of her published work is available from Playwrights Canada Press and Scirocco Drama. Next time on the Writer's Toolkit podcast. I'm talking to a screenwriter who has enjoyed enormous success with no less than 15 produced screenplays. As well as being an accomplished playwright and film critic for the LA Times, Gary Goldstein has just added published author to his glittering resume. You know, if you're a screenwriter and you've always wanted to write a novel, but felt like you don't have the time, think of it this way. If you wrote a page a day, at the end of the year, you'd have the first draft of your book. We talk about his unfussy approach and super-disciplined commitment to getting the work done. And of course, his debut novel, The Last Birthday Party. I'd love for you to follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Paul Kalbergi, and you'll find links for everything mentioned in this episode in the show notes below too. Until next time, stay inspired. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Writer's Toolkit podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and share the link with your friends. 
This podcast is fueled by coffee. If you'd like to support the show, you'll find the Buy Me a Coffee link in the show notes. This podcast is fueled by coffee. If you'd like to support the show, you'll find the Buy Me a Coffee link in the show notes.